Affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 11. The Four Loves, Our Affections. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance and charity. And today is a special episode. We thought that it would be a good idea that as we finish each of these four loves, for us to interview someone with whom we share that particular kind of love. And this past month, we've been looking at Storgi, at affection, the love of the familiar, particularly related to family. So we'll kick things off with Matt. Why, hello, friends. This is Matt here now. I do not know the order that David put these in. I know he did the introduction, but I am here with my individual that I will uh, introduce in a second for the affection. And this one might, I don't actually know who David, well, David, I think chose his mom and I don't know who Andrew chose, but I'm guessing people wouldn't have expected who I chose because this is a male friend, which you probably wouldn't think you'd think save that for the friendship chapter and affection would be a mother or a sister or something like that, or a wife, because that's, it's in the household that a lot of affection happens. But I will explain uh, in a second, it was actually in this chapter that I was reading this quote, and I'm going to kick this off with this quote. And this made me think of this individual. And as I was thinking through this, I realized through more conversations with David and Andrew, I'm like, huh, this person actually, him and I have a lot of affection together. And so from this chapter, Lewis writes, affection at its best can say whatever affection at its best wishes to say, regardless of the rules that govern public courtesy for affection at its best wishes neither to wound nor to humiliate nor to domineer. You may address the wife of your bosom as pig when she has inadvertently drunk your cocktail as well as her own. You may roar down the story which your father is telling once too often. You may tease and hoax and banter. You can say, shut up, I want to read. You can do anything in the right tone and at the right moment. The tone and moment which are not intended and will not hurt. And interestingly enough, the, the individual I have on here, I just gotten off the phone call with maybe an hour before reading this in the chapter, and I literally wrote his name in the in the in the side thing because I was having a f- conversation about working out, and I had sent him this video that you don't need to always push yourself 100%, but 70% works. And I tried to claim that it was his fault that he always pushes himself with me to 100% because I work out much more, and he always, whenever he works out, tries to do everything I do. And then he literally stops me halfway through. He goes, whoa, bush, bush, bush. Don't even try to pretend for one second. You're not the one calling me a piece of crap in the gym. And I just remembered that line that said, shut up. I want to read. He has that personality with me where it just calls out all of my BS. And Lord knows, and he'll, we'll probably get into it on this. I have plenty of BS. And so that was a really long wind up and introduction to welcome my college roommates and dearest friend from college, uh, Christian Demery. Christian, welcome. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad uh, glad your listeners know that I can't keep up with you in the weight room now. That's a good <laughs> intro. Honestly, you know, we'll get you there. If you would actually do what I said and push yourself harder, you would be there. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, that was the moment. But then there was plenty of other examples I was thinking of in our dynamic because we are constantly called the old married couple. I remember the first time someone called us that senior year of college. So, so listeners know Christian and I lived together sophomore year of college, became roommates, and then I was abroad my entire junior year. And then senior year, we lived together again. And we really did pretty quickly become the old married couple. And since then, we've done everything together. We travel all the time. We do activities together. We chat all the time. And, uh, that our dynamic is constantly, I, I think with you, those words where it says you can say anything, do anything because you never intend to hurt or humiliate. You can literally make, and now I'm speaking between you and I, you can literally make fun of me in a public setting. And I never take any offense to it because I know you never have an intention to humiliate or to hurt. And there is, and that is a, a form of affection. You might be thinking, oh, that's just friendship, but it's like, that's a deep friendship where you've come to that point where I know what you truly mean. I know what you're saying. I know the joke. I know what's behind it. And I think that's what Lewis says. And, he, and that's why he clarifies affection at its best, because we're not going to get into this here, but part of the chapter is affection at its worst, because affection can actually go wrong. It can be weaponized. It can be demonized. So I wanted to bring you on. I want to just talk about our dynamic here. There's not a lot of structure to this. And so I want to kick us off with asking you the question of when did you, before we get to the affection part, it starts with friendship. And Lewis actually writes this friendship as it ages and you spend more and more time becomes like old friends or in our case, old married couple. When did you, when did the friendship start? And what do you think? Yeah, you know, I don't us? know. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a, a specific date that I can recall. I, I do know that coming in to college, I, you know, now that I can reflect on, on what our friendship has been over the last, I guess, over 10 years now, I didn't have that throughout my entire childhood or even in high school. And so I think the friends that I did have, um, you know, I just wasn't as, as secure or as confident with, you know, the vulnerabilities and the trust to really be able to have that kind of affection with, with others. And so when I came in, I remember I actually did not think that I would even become friends with you based on on my initial interactions with you. And I think I actually searched for <laughs> some of those other qualities that I was used to from my high school friends and others. And so uh, it, it really is interesting to kind of reflect back on all those years and, and realize the friendship that we've, uh, we've built over the years, because it, it certainly was not my expectation uh, going in. Um, so I think to well, think I gotta, about, I got to stop you there. I'll, I'll let you chime in, in a second again, but you said something that you don't realize was about, spot on because this is going to be released after our first episode on friendship. I think so. And we just talked about this exact thing that you just said. Um, oh shoot. Have you ever, I just had a brain fart. I just completely <laughs> lost track of where I was going with this. Um, oh, I feel so oh, much better about this I interview. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Lewis argues that most people have not experienced the true depth of genuine friendship. He actually believes, so in his chapter, he feels like he has to uh, create a rehabilitation that friendship is considered a love. If you read Aristotle, if you read Socrates, they talk about friendship as one of the greatest things you can have in life. And today, I don't think people talk about that as much. And there's probably a crisis of deep friendship. And so 
I was just a side. Well, I'll tell you though. the quote. The quote that you mentioned many years ago. So this will let your listeners know just how long you've been on the on the C.S. Lewis uh, uh, track. Here is I think I don't know when it was, but at one point you you came back from class. This was in college, and you said, you know, the, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, something to the effect of, um, you know, he talks about friendship. It's it's when you realize you ask the question, you know, what you two? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> And and that I think did I get that kind of right? Is that a CS? You got Lewis it one hundred percent right. And listeners, I did yeah. not pay him to say that, and haven't mentioned that to him in years. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll never forget it because that I think is the is the quote that best sums up uh, the you know when I think about how you can, um, or at least how I think our friendship has developed is is for so long, or, or for for so many of, of I think people when you're thinking about your friends and, and the depth of that friendship, a lot of it doesn't, very rare does it go beyond kind of surface level, social interactions, maybe common interests. But when you can get to a level where you start to kind of see the the real depth of the person and then realize, you know, through that depth that, oh, wow, there's so much commonality on uh, on things that I thought it was really, you know, that I was kind of the one that was off the off the beaten path, if you will, right? That I, you know, you kind of had mainstream. Everyone thinks about things the same way, does things, likes this music, whatever. But then when you when you realize someone else has similar quirks that you do, um, I think that's a window to to opening up a level a level of vulnerability that um, that you know many probably don't get to experience. So I, I don't know when that window presented itself, but that was there was a moment. I would probably say sophomore year after we started living to living together with each other where you know that that window opened and um and you start to just realize that yeah at the end of the day are we different do we have uh differences in our personalities sure but there's there's just a a common core there uh that i think we both can see in each other that then that then allowed that uh that depth to to really flourish and and you know be further explored well, it's first of all, I'm starting to realize I did choose the wrong chapter because you're practically listing everything we're talking about in the friendship chapter. So I'm, this is great. Uh, our listeners are probably <laughs> they're they're probably chuckling how literally you are rehashing everything Lewis says. He he talks about companionship leads to friendship. Companionship is you you usually spend a lot of time together over more just colleagues, work colleagues, spending time together, sports. But then there's a small subset of a group that you you might. Let's, for example, if you go to a church community and you spend a bunch of time with 100 people, there'll be like one or two that you'll realize that what you two, and it'll develop into a deep friendship of intimacy, vulnerability, affection. But uh, I want to go think back to- But I think, I think that serves as the seed yep. to then get into maybe your, your the point of your talk of affection, because by having that, that level of trust, that level of vulnerability, then that allows me to want to, um, uh, I guess- expand you know uh, what's the right word i want the the things that we do that you know think where people think we're an old married couple or you know all the kind of jokes we get those things are only allowed to happen because of that level of trust and vulnerability so i think it it kind of rather than me try to hide those things i i i am am willing and 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 not self-conscious of having them you know laid out there when when you know, now, now I know why your listeners didn't want, thought it'd be strange to have a male uh, friend on here. Cause I was about, you know, now I'm ready to just, you know, expand with you on them. But anyway, so. <laughs> don't hold back, but no, I, I, I want to make a little joke or two in the beginning. Um, if I'm correct and I read it right. And I think I have a decent emotional intelligence. You know, when I asked you to be a roommate, so we, we had, it was first semester 
sophomore or freshman year that we started to hang out a little bit. And I'm not going to, for time's sake, rehash the really funny story of the birthday cake and all that good stuff. But um, that's a fun story for another time, guys. Uh, but then we started to play a little basketball. We started to hang out somewhat. And I want to say we had to choose roommates like January or February of freshman year. And so you and I were still in the early stages of this friendship and you were probably closer to like Brad, Colin, and those guys. And there was four of them, plus you were a fifth one. And you were kind of, I don't want to say the outcast of those ones. You were close with them, but those four, and then there was you as well. And I know when I asked you to be a roommate, you seemed kind of hesitant. Like, I remember you were probably like, you know, because I didn't hang out with them as much and you kind of were a part of that group. And, and, uh, I think back to that day and, and I, I, I think you begrudgingly, begrudgingly wouldn't be the right word, but you, you did say, uh, I don't know if I have a better option. This will probably work. And then obviously everything flourished after that. But I look back at that moment and I'm so grateful that it did happen. And I do agree somewhere in sophomore year, I don't, I don't even know if we bonded necessarily over a what you two right away. Like, Sometimes it happens where you meet someone immediately, like even with David Bates, uh, my co-host, one of the things that we bonded to, like literally the first time we chatted was we realized we both love C.S. Lewis. And that was like a what you too immediately. You know, with you, I don't know if it was in that very first moment that happened, but we really quickly realized we love to do activities and just things together. You know, we would go to dinners together. We would play basketball constantly together. We'd work out together. I mean, we would study together. We just, I don't know, found that we like to do life together almost. Yeah. And that was, the, I mean, that, I mean, that's well said because I think that it was one of those where every time that like, it was almost strange in a way that when I, when my mind would change gears to something, your mind changed, you know, changed gears to that same thing. And we were always kind of in sync, whether it was, you know, we're out doing an activity and then it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sensing, all right, I'm, I'm, I've had enough and I'm ready to Irish exit and I peek over across the room and there's Matt giving me his eye, like, Hey, I'm ready to Irish exit. And it's like, all right, we're on the, you know, so, so throughout all, all of college and I guess all of life, anytime we're, we're wanting to do something or leave from something or what have you, uh, for the most part, we were always in sync and, and, and yeah, that, that's just a very rare, I guess, uh, rare, rare find. You know, the word I was thinking of actually is I want to say we, we approach life with the same intentionality. And so in college, you have a lot of people just going through college reacting, if you want to call it that, you know, they're just partying, reacting. And I, and I think you and I were very intentional with our schoolwork. We're very intentional with working out. We're very intentional with you and I used to go to bed at 11 o'clock, which for college is quite early, you know, 10, honestly, between 10 and 11. Um, we loved, we would go out and, you know, party a couple times a week, but people were partying four or five nights a week. And you and I are just like, you know what, I just want to watch a movie tonight and get a good night's sleep. You know, everything we did, or we wanted to intentionally go on a fun trip. You know, everyone's going to Mexico and we're like, let's not go to Mexico. Let's actually do a more meaningful trip. I want to just say that that might be the thing we bonded around. We just didn't like the the meaningless stuff, I guess might be the answer. Yeah. I think that, you know, the quality I think we both have that allowed all that to happen too is, is, is neither one of us are kind of, uh, we don't just jump on the bandwagon because everyone else is doing it or everyone else is thinking it. And so I think, you know, a lot of these things, whether it was going out, going on a trip, whatever it may be, where you get that groupthink mentality, uh, you and I both have a, a sense of, of, of thinking through it a little more thoughtfully or, or, or just independently and, uh, and therefore kind of come to our own conclusions. And I think both of us would kind of let each other uh, uh, convince for one another on, on what we might want to do or not want to do. And, and the other was 
receptive to to it and anyway just it just always seemed to work so you know there might be a day where i didn't want to work out and you did and you know you'd push me and you know bring this back full circle to have the interview started i would go there and you know not quite not quite make it up to your standard but you know a for a for effort <laughs> oh my goodness in fairness there you were at the same level as me um there you go and we should give you a little credit on here you kick my butt in basketball and any sort of sport so while i can beat you in weightlifting and running you kick my hiney and the other stuff so you're a quite athletic human being um I want to put you on the spot with a couple questions and see if you come up with stuff for it because I think people now got a good sense of the the dynamic. Um, so we talked about when we became friends and stuff. What do you think, or when do you think it somewhat became an old married couple? And or that might be a little bit tough to answer because it doesn't really happen at one specific moment. Um, what do you think it is that we do? Like, what are some exa- some examples, or why people actually call us it? And what comes to your mind when I say those things? Are there any stories that you think of or moments or things between us? Uh, you know, I think we both really go against, I think the, the impetus for that label, I think both of us really go against the grain of kind of traditional college life of going out late, uh, you know, partying, partying frequently. And I think both of us were, kind of our nature was early to bed, early to rise, and obviously still had wanted to have social lives. So would would go out uh, um, and, and have fun. But I think that's kind of where it started is, is we were both always on the same train when it comes to, um, you know, how frequently or how late we, we went out um, is, is I think where that started. And I think from there, it really grew into, you know, going to dinners together. And I think, again, a lot of it's just, we're always against the grain, right? I think, yeah. that, I think there's kind of a mainstream way of people uh, of a lot of our friend groups and kind of the masses of the way they do things. All right. Hey, we'll, uh, you know, go, go to Chipotle or whatever it is, five guys. And it's like, all right, well we, we can do that, but, but we both still have the, the desire to, Oh, let's do one once in a while, do a, a nice dinner at Soren's. And, you know, other people might have that feeling. I don't know, but maybe they're a bit insecure of how that gets perceived. And I think, you know, at, 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 at one point you and I were comfortable enough in our own skin to just, yeah, this is what we like to do on occasion. And we did it and, and, and enjoyed it. So, uh, the, I think it, I don't know where it started, but those kinds of things kind of started to build on themselves. And yeah, before you knew it, certainly by senior year, it was, it was widespread and yeah, just, just accept the label and embrace it. <laughs> I, I, I also know there's, there's times where like you would leave a party early and if I didn't, one of those nights when I didn't, I'd end up like just covering for you or defending for you or just justifying like my spouse's actions almost Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. oh no, you know, he's just tired. He's all this stuff. Um, curious also, this is maybe a little bit too related to a question, but, um, what are some examples when you would say in our dynamic and the reason I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot with this one is. We can all think of what affection looks like between a husband and a wife, a, uh, a mother and a child. You know, those are very the most classic examples of affection in a household. What do you think it looked like between us as friends? And we've already somewhat touched on this indirectly through our conversation, but are there any examples of like what, when you think of affection between you and I, uh, what do you think it looks like? What it looked like in general, or, or, or are you talking about specific examples in college or? Uh, in general, even, even now, I mean, we've talked a lot about college, but cause that's when we live together, but we, we still, honestly, we hang out, (laughs) 
we probably spend a month a year together between trips, I feel like, and talking every week. Hmm. You're talking about examples beyond what we just discussed. I mean, give me give me a little more. Yeah, I mean, ones that come to my mind are are honestly the the incredibly well intentioned bickering. You know, and even right before we started recording this call, you were you were uh, your wife had popped in and you had made some comments. And I'm so used to driving the car and watching you do controlling stuff or making comments towards me, and it literally makes me laugh. It there is I never, I don't think there's ever been a time where I've. There's maybe been a couple times in my entire time, life with you where I might have taken things personally, but then we just talk about it and address it and move on and realize it wasn't, again, it reaffirms it wasn't meant to be personal in the slightest. And so very, very rarely in all of our interactions. And so I think that's one thing that Yeah, I think really, that's a huge thing. I mean, I think that's a, a, a product of, of a lot of the, the ingredients we've already discussed here. And then, and then you add on top of that, both of our personality traits of being candid and, uh, and understanding you know, that, 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 you know, what our intentions are with that candor, I think that's produced that kind of, yeah, I think we take bickering to a, to a new level, but knowing, (laughs) I think at the end of the day, we know, we know what the true intent is behind it and what, what's real, what's not. And, um, but yeah, you can't get to that level. I mean, again, that's why it really is interesting. And, And even while we're on this, uh, this interview, as I'm trying to reflect over, over 10 plus years of friendship, I mean, that, that kind of level doesn't just get there on its own. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, I would say that probably didn't really get there until senior year. So, I mean, that was probably through a solid two years of friendship, um, so and that and so that over that time you got to have a lot of trust build up a lot of I mean I, I think that's the other thing is there there wasn't any any point along the way that I can think of where that uh, that trust dipped or that vulnerability was exposed in the wrong way I mean I think that it just got I mean I think we both um, you know, built along that the whole way so yeah uh, the the bickering was a huge uh, is, is definitely something that we are are known to do. And I think that's, that's a great example. One, one final one, cause we're, we're just passing the 20 minute marker. Um, and this, the answer to this might be simply no, but I do have one story I'm thinking of. Have you ever had any fear? He, he ends the affection uh, chapter with when you have this kind of dynamic between you and I, where we're, we're just incredibly vulnerable. There's all that bickering and all that stuff. And, and it's just very, it's very familiar. That's a word he uses. Very familiar. And we like the familiar of moments in where you you were worried that could change. Like maybe there is a there is a fear of change a little bit in these dynamics because people do change. Um I you know you have obviously know my arc within college and the faith and the Catholic faith and all that stuff and what does that mean for a relationship? You know in college you and I weren't devoutly Catholic and so there's certain lifestyle choices and then as you start to shift and adapt it's like oh am I losing my friend am I losing the familiar am I losing did you ever have any of those thoughts at any point in time um yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question. Cause I, I could <laughs> go pretty deep on that because the short answer is yes. And I mind, I don't even know if I've shared, shared it with you thus far, but I think, uh, you know, you, your experience in India and you were abroad for a while. And I think you were really discovering, uh, your faith in a, in a much deeper way. Um, so what was that kind of junior, junior college, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, we, we weren't seeing each other 
physically, but we would, you know, hop on phone calls or, or have some video chats and just the way you were talking, it, it, it was tough for me because in the one, on the one hand, you were, you were, it seemed like you were kind of growing as a person and growing closer, closer to your faith. But with that, it seemed like a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the jokes and just kind of the more secular personality traits, I guess I'll say that, that, that we shared that I thought were, were special, but you know, maybe they weren't seen, uh, holy, uh, you, you, you were, you know, you weren't as, you weren't looking at those as, as, uh, as, as great, you know, as in, as in high standard. And anyway, long story short is I did worry. is like, all right, is, is this person, is the math that I knew changing into a different person? And, and, and what does that mean? Because maybe this is, what's best for him, but it, it certainly would change the dynamic of our friendship because I think part of, part of what is such a, an incredible part of our friendship is that, you know, there's no judgment period. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's another core ingredient is that it, all right, if you go all along this way and I, I stay where I am and I still have, you know, whatever some of the, some of the, the quirks that I've got that might not meet your standard, what does that change through your, your eyes and, and, and through mine? But so, anyway, that, I think that was a period. Um, and I think you even probably sensed that because I think when you came back, you kind of made a joke like, don't worry, Christian, you know, same old Matt's here. Still want to go to dinner. Um, so still want to enjoy those secular pleasures. We'll, we'll, you know, so anyway, so I, I think still you sensed it, but that was probably, the bars. there you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the exact one I was thinking of. You had mentioned that you and Chad and a couple of the guys were chatting because I kept that blog. And so I had, I had, Oh, that's what it was. Yes. Yeah. I forgot. And I was like, what was the reason why we all, yeah. because it wasn't just me. It was the blog. Yeah. It was the blog you kept and we were all just following from, from afar in South Bend, Indiana. And we would, we'd catch up with one another like, man, I don't know. What? I don't know what kind of, what's the, what's the guy that's going to come back from all this? Yeah. <laughs> and, and people are pretty familiar with you know, the listeners, the longtime listeners of the Oxford period. This was all over that Oxford period. India was yeah. uh, in the middle of that. Um, no, I'm really glad you, you remembered that and brought that up because I, I, what's cool about the, if you have a really deep affection and friendship, which there's kind of an overlap we're talking about here. I did, but then you realized I was on a journey and as much as intellectually, I was really starting to buy into a lot different lifestyle maybe than you and I were living, uh, transforming your life takes time. And so I think you would agree my transformation has taken time. It didn't just happen overnight. I didn't come back and just judge everything and become a different person. But then also when you have that depth, I would never, you would never leave someone behind. I think you would admit I've tried to pull you along the way and now you're married to the most devout Catholic woman I think I ever know. And we had that conversation. I won't say about what Catholic teaching, but you know, like three or four months ago when you're in the pre-Cana and you're like, huh, I get it now. I see what you've been saying for five years. And so that was like a really cool moment for me of I would never abandon someone you're so close to, but of course I'm going to try to pull people along. And so I, and I think what's cool is all of our friends, and I think the Notre Dame friends, you know, we've had such beautiful conversations about the Catholic faith and each of them in different degrees have come closer because of interactions and conversations. And um, yeah, and that's actually something uh, Andrew Lazo, he's one of the co-hosts, there's three of us, David, Andrew, myself, talked about was um, friends bring different parts of you out. And so I try to, I love the Catholic side, but you don't have to necessarily see the same truth 
as a person to become a really close friend. And so if my truth was slightly shifting from your truth early on, what was important though, is do you both agree that truth is important? And are you intellectually curious? And are you searching to become a better version of yourself? And you always had that. We'd always share books. We'd always have intellectual conversations. We'd always try to push each other. You know, we've joked about the working outside of things and the gym, but that's just the physical. We've done that with the mental. We've done that with the spiritual, the emotional. And so, you know, I was never really worried about that per se, but, um, that was the exact example I was hoping you'd bring up. Yep. Well, I love it. Any uh, any final roasts or stories that you want to let the thousands of people that have known me so they know I'm I'm actually pretty honest and genuine on this podcast. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> any any final ones to roast Matt Bush? Oh, you know, I think uh, I think I'll spare spare your listeners. <laughs> I love it. Well, Christian. I love you, my friends. I uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, You did a fantastic job. And yeah, thank you for joining me and being such a good friend and allowing me to share this affection with you and listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And now, listeners, we come to my guests for this episode. We're going to begin by speaking to the woman who gave birth to a legend, my mother, Angela Bates. Hi, Mum. Hello, my darling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, sweetheart, and happy Christmas to you all. And big cuddles for Alexander. (laughs) It's been very strange having Christmas here, because we haven't done any of the things that I would normally associate with Christmas, like eating turkey and eating obscene amounts of licorice all sorts, because they're rather hard to get in Wisconsin. Well... When we asked our Patreon supporters what questions they wanted you to answer, most of them revolved around what I was like growing up. So can you please tell the people just quite how delightful I was? Well, I will try and be careful what I say and polite. As a baby, you were angelic. You just, As long as you were fed and watered, you generally just played in your cot very nicely. And were a delight. You were a delight. When you started to find your feet, that's when life became a bit interesting. <laughs> you were extremely mischievous. Mm-hmm. And you'd never believe it now, but you were a very late talker. <laughs> your sister used to interpret for you. She spoke for you. Mm-hmm. And you were very happy to let her do this. Why do something yourself when somebody else will do it more than adequately for you? And it makes them so happy. They want to help. Absolutely. And I would say that, joking apart, you two were devoted to each other. It was a perfect relationship between you two. And I had many friends who were very envious that I had these two devoted children who didn't argue, didn't dispute, didn't fight. And I just mildly felt very smug, actually. <laughs> but you, you, you loved each other deeply. But when you when Helen went to school, you did have withdrawal symptoms and you weren't very pleased about this arrangement. When I took her off early in the morning and she didn't come back till mid-afternoon, all right, and you were only about, I don't know, three, four, and you complained bitterly that things weren't the same anymore. <laughs> anyway, you had to learn to talk when you went to preschool. Playgroup? Yes, playgroup? Mm-hmm, I remember that. It was just down the street, wasn't it? Mm. In the local village hall. 
and we mothers used we had qualified leaders and then we mothers used to take turns in being ancillary workers on a voluntary basis and you had to speak then because no one else is going to do it for you but you narrowly avoided going to a speech therapist by a whisper it was that near but when you did start talking you didn't stop and just let's say the rest is history <laughs> you always had a very imaginative very active imagination very inventive games and if you couldn't think of the right word that had you come by in normal parlance you'd make one up mm. we had noculus yep that's binoculars we had daddy deadlocks ah uh, those are daddy long legs and i think americans actually refer to a different insect with this but it's basically a creature that looks like a spider but with wings I have no idea where that term came from. Absolutely none at all. Words are hard. And then so we got you speaking, but then reading. The same problem. <laughs> Why should you learn to read when you have this devoted sister and mildly devoted mother who read to you? Why put yourself out and learn to read yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I was desperate. I bought so many different types of styles of books what we'd say genre now i tried everything i bought paper comics which of course were very frowned on in those days <laughs> but we discovered asterix mm-hmm. and that was it we were off at long last so you had this funny little man who was going around europe trying to save europe well the world as it was known then trying to save the world from julius caesar mm-hmm. Post-Gallic Wars, all that business. Um, and this appealed to you. A history appealed to you. Oh, it was also the fact that Asterix was this little guy. And I was not the biggest guy in the world either. Uh, but he had this magic potion which made him super strong. Oh, I've forgotten. And yeah, he went around having adventures with Obelix. And, and I was actually talking about this to one of my sisters-in-law last night about those books and about how many of the jokes went way over my head. Such as the names, mm. the chieftain was called Vital Statistics. Uh, the druid was called Getafix. Uh, yeah, no, so much of that stuff went over my head, but I did love it. Oh, well, I, I think subconsciously it must have appealed to this rather weird, latent sense of humour that we've come to know and love. Mm-hmm. And then when you were about seven or eight, I finally discovered a whole range of books. I can't be really struggling to remember the author, but I can't. You might remember. Willard Price. Well, you- Absolutely. Willard Price. Fix your own... No, it was Choose Your Own Adventure, no, wasn't it? No, no, no. We did try that. That wasn't good for me because I didn't have the discipline oh, right. to read the page before making the decision. Um, oh, right. No, his, his books were all things like Lion Adventure, African Adventure, Shark Adventure. So each book was based... It was basically the Hardy Boys, but for kids that were interested in animals. So with each book, they, oh. were, they were studying a particular kind of animal and capturing them for their dad's zoo. Well, it did. Occur, I had to remember. I remembered you went to the Amazon in, in your stories and the, the Africa, but um, I hadn't tweaked that bit. But um, I was wondering. I've subsequently wondered whether that gave you your love of travel and adventure and exploring new territories and new ways of living. And just in, it just might have ignited something. Quite possibly, and that does actually remind me of another word that I would say when I was little. 
if I was heading out in the garden, somebody would say, where are you going? And I'd say, exploring. Yes, without the EX in front of it, <laughs> exploring. I think that came with Winnie the Pooh, didn't it, to start with? Quite possibly. The funny thing is, I'd completely forgotten about Winnie the Pooh until I saw the recent movie, and I saw it okay. with Marie, and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about Heffalumps and... Tigger and Eeyore since I was a little child and suddenly all of these terms and were, were being mentioned and I was thrown back into my childhood. I do remember loving Winnie the Pooh uh, but yeah I, I hadn't thought about it again until the recent movie came out where Pooh says people say nothing is impossible but I do nothing every day. I think adults enjoy Winnie the Pooh as well and I think we can learn a lot from some of his messages to be honest. <laughs> Well, the next set of questions that people asked me to ask you all revolved around, unsurprisingly, C.S. Lewis and Narnia. So you said that some friends introduced Narnia to you. Was, was, that, was that the Hogs, the Hog family? Yes, they were Anglicans. And he, um, we knew him when he became a, an Anglican minister. They were and are the most wonderful couple, wonderful family. I don't remember a huge amount about them, but I do remember feeling very warmly about them. So they introduced the books to you. When did you start reading them to us? Well, you were very small, and I used them as a bribe to get you into the bath every night. <laughs> and to keep, you know, me, and to keep me there, because otherwise I would get in the bath, I'm wet, so then I'd get out. So I assume that the, what was necessary in the bathing process had been completed. Absolutely. Why waste time? Yes, and you were absolutely spellbound, absolutely spellbound. You, well, you both were. And when you were about seven, I think as you grew and your love of Narnia grew with you. But anyway, Aslan became a watchword in our household. Everything was Aslan. Um, when you started walking, so that's even going back before you were in the bath, I suppose, um, we got you an Aslan. I didn't, I didn't wash until I was walking. <laughs> oh, yes, that's probably it. But anyway, you had a little Aslan, plastic, plastic Aslan baby walker, which mm -hmm. helped you to learn to walk one foot in front of the other. And there was a lid in his back. And in the cavity, we could always guarantee we'd find sultanas, raw carrots, <laughs> random pieces of Lego, and, of course, the ubiquitous piece of string. You never know when you the might need some string. String about that long. Mm -hmm. And I never knew what you ever did with these pieces of string. In fact, I will interject here that when we moved house when you were 16, mm -hmm. when we came to Thatcham, you didn't want to leave Hermitage where you grew up. And we came to Thatcham and I found in your pocket Lego and that piece of string. <laughs> Perhaps not on not during this interview, but at some point you might enlighten me as to what you actually did. Have you been storing up all these pieces of string? Are they now one piece of string? Your own cold experience or something? Mm -hmm. Step one, collect string. Step two, unclear. Step three, world domination. Absolutely. But when you were seven, and what I do remember, again, very clearly, we went to the Apollo Theatre in Oxford, so very appropriately, C.S. Lewis stamping ground, for um, a stage version of The Lion Within the Wardrobe. And you, again, were hanging on the edge of your seat. And all these other children of similar age, causing chaos. They had no idea what was going on on the stage. 
that there's no daunting you. Your, pay, your face is a picture of concentration, absolutely mesmerised by what it was all about. Mr. Sauer was very proud. And as Aslan, when you knew Aslan was coming to the stone table, we were sitting at the balcony and you leant forward and grabbed the balcony. Wonderful. Enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed your performance as much as anything. I do remember going to see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I also remember seeing a production of The Magician's Nephew because I remember that the children flew on Fledge. I remember the flying horse. Oh, yes. I can't remember if we saw any of the others. But I think that was probably in Oxford as well. Mm. Yeah. Oxford would have attracted things that wouldn't have been necessarily so popular nearer to home. Well, funnily enough, there's actually a production of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe going on at the time of recording in December of 2021, also in Oxford. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. I'll have a little scout round and see what I can find out about that. I'll send you a link. That's interesting. But about a year later, um, your ent- entrepreneurial skills must have started developing. And I, when I was sorting out some old memories the other day, the photographs and bits and pieces, I came across a ticket inviting me to attend a showing of the land, the Wish in the Wardrobe, <laughs> in our living room on the television. And you had, we lived in a bungalow, so it was, you'd invited your friends around for the afternoon, obviously with my permission. Um, and um, as they came in, you handed them a ticket admitting them to our living room. Mm-hmm. And I had built a box office, I remember that. That was it. You, they had, you handed over on the box office this ticket. And the ticket says, refreshments will be served. <laughs> I can't remember what you blackmailed me onto producing, but was it crisps and biscuits or something? Probably. So, listeners, this refers to the BBC adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and subsequently Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Silver Chair. So those came out live on TV when I was a kid. And I, I remember that being advertised and deciding that it was, I was going to make this an event. But was that your first attempt at evangelization, David? <laughs> I think I probably tried to charge people, so probably not. <laughs> I probably stopped that. <laughs> um, but that actually, I've just memory just come into my mind that when you were about eleven and you went on a school trip <laughs> on, on a coach, do you know what I'm going to say? I know what you're going to say, Karen. And you were selling glass, glasses of water from your bottle. People had run out of water. So I'm ashamed to say I think you sold them some of yours. It's it was, awful. It was a modern day retelling of the parable of the grasshopper and the squirrel. A lot of other students didn't ration their food or prepare. I actually think you had also sent me with some food that day because I think you weren't sure whether or not I was going to be fed. So I had plenty of food. But either way, I rationed it. And then on the on the coach ride home, from wherever it is we'd gone to see, maybe Bewley, the automotive museum, or we didn't go to too many interesting places <laughs> in, on our school trips. But on the drive home, which was probably at least an hour and a half, I just started selling off my lunch, which I hadn't eaten. Dear me. See, this is what happens if you didn't give me pocket money. Well, at this point, I would add you were attending a Benedictine school. Here's <laughs> what good that did you, darling. Yep. Well, as you were going on, moving on a bit, 
as a young boy, you were always in trouble anyway. Mm-hmm. Always outside the head teacher's door for some misdemeanor or other. Usually fighting. But you never fought with your fists. You always fought with words. Sometimes my fists as well, but I usually got in a few good insults that upset people beforehand. Well, I didn't say that you were a master par excellence with the insult. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the problem was you had a great sense of justice and of fairness. Mm-hmm. And if anything wasn't fair or anything wasn't just, you were in there, in the thick of it. <laughs> and you, you reckon that if something was worth is true, then it was worth saying. There's absolutely no reason why you hold back. If something is true, you say it. You tell it how it is. And it got you into so much trouble. It was years, it was years before you learnt when to talk and when not to talk. When to hold your tongue. Yes, because it transitioned from being sent to the headmaster's office when I was in primary school, so when I was under 10 years old. And then when I was over 10 years old, I didn't so much talk back to the teachers, but I did to the prefects at our school. And anyone that's read Surprised by Joy, there was a very similar sort of system at, at my school. Nowhere near as brutal, but it was definitely there that the that the prefects, they had power. And if I yes. didn't agree with their decisions, I told them. True. There was a David Bates-shaped hole in the holly bush outside the prefect's common room. Uh, But it was all (laughs) character-forming. So they tell me. I'm sure you'd have formed your character without some of the antics that those boys got up to. Mm. Another memory that's just come to me is that your love of archery, you were a very competent, very proficient archer. And I think, I think that might have started with your love of Queen Susan mm-hmm. in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Because your first arrows, we got you a plastic bow and arrow, and the arrows have plas- plastic rubber suction tips. Mm-hmm. You shot at a rubber target. Or small animals. Oh, I hope not. Don't tell me that. <laughs> um, uh, and then we soon realised that you, you were actually quite good you had an eye for this target so we got you lessons and you went over you went all over the home counties and you won quite a few awards actually you were you were very good at it i think you're right that probably did begin with narnia because you had susan and then i remember eustace and jill they also did archery there was some i was in the silver chair that they mentioned that they'd been practicing and actually uh, it was in the silver chair and the last battle i think they mentioned that but it was it was worthwhile. It was an excellent discipline, and you saw new places, met new people. Mm-hmm. So looking back, it was a very worthwhile hobby, actually. Yeah, I did something called field archery with Dad. So the two of us, we would drive an hour or two to uh, some woods somewhere. I think the furthest north we ever went was actually Sherwood, uh, but we would go to these courses and they were in like a big figure of eight. It would take most of the day. You would get there early and I think would usually be done by about 3 p.m., something like that. And it was a big figure of eight and they had uh, pictures of animals uh, and there were kill shots and there were wound areas. And so you basically walked around the woods shooting these things. And in the center of the figure of eight, that was where you, everyone hung out and chatted with other people. And most importantly, that's where the burger van was. So I would usually I would usually get a, a bacon sandwich for breakfast when we got there, and then a burger at lunch. Yeah, that was some very warm memories of doing that. Not physically, 
it was often really cold because mm. it's England, but hey. <laughs> mm. uh, one of our listeners asked me to ask you, were you surprised at how important C.S. Lewis has become to me as an adult? Not at all. You were always a thinker. You always had an acquiring mind. You always wanted to know why. <laughs> Sometimes annoyingly so. Oh, yes, because it is. Um, you were logical. You reasoned. You never let dyslexia get in the way of anything. You found ways in doing everything that you wanted to do. I think also you secretly quite admire the English gentleman in C.S. Lewis. Not that he was English, but near enough, yeah. Well, I mean, British gentleman. No, he wasn't even... Yes, he was. He was British, British. British gentleman. And I think you quite liked the idea of the pipe-smoking academic... <laughs> And that was one of the, the the last times I was back. You and I went to Oxford and we went to the Eagle and Child yeah. and we did a tour of the kilns. We did. It was wonderful. And, I, and it was very evocative of him, wasn't it? It was as if they just popped out almost. I mean, you could manage him, imagine him and Joy there. No, I, it was a wonderful trip, actually. It was lovely. And, of course, we had to go to the Eagle and Child and raise a glass or two to him. Mm-hmm. But I bet it was thick with smoke and those when he was still puffing because there wouldn't have been any restrictions. So they've all been puffing away and drinking alcohol. The gases have been quite incredible, I should think. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, since we're in the Christmas season, it seems only appropriate that we end with this question. Do you have any particular favourite Christmas memories with us as kids? When you were well, on on the frivolous side, when you were small, um, once you were safely in bed, I used to leave Father Christmas's footprints on the hearth in front of the open fire. Mm-hmm. I used to make his footprints with silver dust, with a stardust, sorry, otherwise known as glitter. <laughs> so that in the morning you would have proof that Father Christmas definitely had gone back up the chimney. Pretty awful now. Lucky we'll be looking back at it. But- on a, <laughs> on a more savoury note, we always said the three of us always said evening prayers together, you, me, and Helen. Mm-hmm. And for several Christmases, we made paper chains. Oh my goodness! Because paper chains is one way we had of decorating your bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Will people understand paper chains? Uh, quite possibly. Strips of coloured strips of coloured paper which you stuck together, and we used to stick. We used to offer our prayers. And then write them on paper chains and link them all together through Advent as one of our ways of preparing for the coming of the baby Jesus. And then we always had um, a calendar in the kitchen when we considered a task for the day that would help us draw nearer to God, to help us to prepare for baby Jesus. But I was a pretty harsh parent, and in those days there was certainly no chocolate Advent calendars. No. I remember going to other people's houses and discovering that this was such a thing. No, I'm sorry, but that was just not going to happen. <laughs> but you did have an abundance of chocolate when Christmas Day came. Mm-hmm. And on the sweet days, you had a sweet day once a week. Mm-hmm. So you could, have a, you could have a sweet or a piece of chocolate on your sweet day. Other yeah. were certainly no advent calendars with chocolate in it. <laughs> Bar, humbug, whatever next... Yeah, I do remember going to the post office, and I usually had about 10p to spend 
because they had mm. a big desk full of penny sweets, penny candies mm. uh, that mm. you could choose. My, my favourite, I think, were often the white chocolate mice. Yes. Well, this has been wonderful. I hope people have got more of an insight into the storgy affection that was in our family and have a little bit of a better idea what it was like growing up as a child in a small English village. I hope they might have been something fairly wholesome and they can forget the bits that weren't so wholesome. Mum, thanks for coming on Pints with Jack. All right, my darling. Love to all. Bye-bye. Happy Christmas. Andrew did intend to record an interview, but that didn't work out. But I still felt that we needed to have three interviews. So I thought I'd interview someone else with whom I share storgy love, my son, Alexander. Alexander, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule of eating and sleeping and pooping to talk to our listeners. Now, obviously, you're fairly new to Wisconsin, but the listeners want to know what your impressions of it have been so far. That's wonderful. Uh, Do you have a particular Christmas message you'd like to share with our listeners? And one last question. You and I haven't started reading the Chronicles of Narnia yet, but there are some people on the internet who have been suggesting that I should read them to you in the chronological rather than publication order. Uh, What do you think about that? Thank you for sharing such an articulate defense of the publication order. I'll take you back to your mother now. Well, I hear the last call bell. We'd like to thank all of our patron supporters, including our top-tier supporters. Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. We hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers.